something to eat. You come back, you won't distract anybody. You can still carry on your, your snack while you're here together. We've still got an hour to go, and I, I want to have some time for questions at the end. So I've, I'm speeding up to give a little more time for questions. I enjoy that as much as, as anything. But we've gone through already six principles. Now, principles are different than methods or programs. Principles are going to be the foundation upon which we build our programs. But the first one, you remember, is to become a servant. I call it incarnation. When you take the role of those that you want to reach, to serve them. The second principle, you remember, is selection. You look for those who want to learn. In a way, God is the one that gives them the desire to learn. You're responding, though, to that desire. And that takes a burden off of you, but be sensitive. There will be some that will respond in answer to your prayers. So keep your eyes open. God will answer. Beginning with those usually that are closest to you, where you live every day. And the third principle is to build a relationship. God brings us into the world in relationship. And it's in this relationship that we can experience fellowship with God. Because God is himself relational. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. An indescribable and unimaginable love that is experienced within the heart of God. And he's praying that someday we will begin to understand some of that love ourselves. But relationship is going to be the basis upon which you reach out and make communication and make connections with those who need to come to Christ and who need to be discipled. And the fourth principle was consecration, obedience. Because if we don't follow the truth that we are learning, we don't grow. But what is it that motivates us, that makes us want to obey? You remember? It's love, isn't it? So that obedience is just an expression of our worship. Oh, that's what makes obedience such a joy. Even when it looks difficult. You experience the joy of the Lord when you follow him. And in that process, and notice this is a process of growth, you can then demonstrate what you're trying to, to teach. You lead by example. And they can understand it better when they see it. And so everything that we are talking about here really becomes finally a matter of, of showing what it means, rather than just telling them. After they see it, then you can tell it, and they will probably understand it. The next principle, number six, was to delegate, get them involved where they're able. At first, it may be just really giving a 
testimony or being faithful in the ministry of the church, doing what they can. They help out in some of the things that are going on here, maybe in the Bible school in the summer. Maybe it will be ushering on Sunday morning, teaching the Sunday school class. But as you grow in your confidence and skill, you begin to see how you can get more involved. You become deacons and elders. Some may be pastors. Some have a call for overseas missionary service. But it's always on-the-job training. Which brings us now to this next principle of supervision. You monitor their progress. Though disciples were slow learners, and that's given me some, uh, some comfort because I slow, I'm a slow learner. Sometimes I've gone through some of the hard lessons more than once because I didn't learn the first time around. But Jesus stayed with these disciples. He was answering their questions. He was asking them questions, helping them to clarify what they were going through. And in that process of checking up, he was seeing how they were actually growing in their knowledge and grace. Just take as an example. There's been some development now in the outreach, and we're told there are 72 disciples that have gone out under his assignment, and they return at a prearranged uh, time and report their experience. And we're told that Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit. Now, don't miss anything. All the Bible is inspired. And you know how important it is, parents, when your child does something right, don't you put your arms around them and hug them or kiss them? Don't you take that little picture they drew in Sunday school and put it up on the refrigerator door? Or you call the good work of your child to the attention of everybody that comes in the house? Children need that affirmation. In fact, it won't hurt adults to get a little too. Most of us respond more to affirmation than we do criticism. But Jesus shows these disciples that he's proud of them. He rejoices with them in the Spirit. But notice, he sees the occasion to teach them a profound theological lesson. For he went on to say, I can see Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now think that one through. We could spend an hour trying to exegete that passage. There are many ways to do it. But among them, I like the idea that these disciples have gone out now on their own and they've seen some success in the power of the gospel. And as this begins to spread... The kingdom of darkness in this world can be defeated. It is reason to rejoice. And Jesus feels that excitement with them. But teaching them, there is still this enemy that they must overcome. But then he adds another thing. A practical observation. As he says... Don't rejoice because demons are subject unto you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in the book of heaven. Now, how do you interpret that? Well, I see that 
as a way of affirming the privilege that these disciples can have all the time in the confidence that they are following Christ. They know they're saved. They know that they are the elect. They know that the one that leads them is the way. And when you have that confidence, you can rejoice. It's not just some big experience that you have that blesses you half to death. You don't have to be looking for some sensational demonstration of your ability. No, you can rejoice even when you've been rejected, when you've been faithful. And the reason for your joy is simply that you know your name is in the book of life. What greater joy could you experience than that? That's what I tell my students. I want to see some real joy on this campus. It wouldn't matter if people driving down the highway could hear some shouts of victory over here on, in these classrooms. Let them know we're alive. Because there's not always that much joy that you can sense on a campus. But we have every reason to rejoice if you know why you have that privilege. Just knowing you're a child of God. Can anything greater happen than has already happened? That's why the songs of Zion should be heard in our homes. And the joy of the Lord becomes our strength. This is the way Jesus is teaching using their experiences, enlarging upon them, pointing out what they can learn from it as he continually leads them on to something new, something better, something that the kings and queens have desired to look into, but he has been pleased to reveal unto babes. Aren't you glad he's he still got something more to teach us? supervision. Check to see that they're making progress. And as the boys meet with me, I have a favorite question that I usually ask them. How are you coming along in your prayer life? Because I've observed if they're keeping that discipline up regularly, joyfully, the probability is they're succeeding all along the line. They're victorious. They're overcoming. But if they are defeated in keeping that quiet time alone with God every day, even if it's just a few minutes, but it's set in their discipline, then they're probably failing in many other ways as well. You see, finally, life is not a matter of just going through routines. We all have certain disciplines that fit into our schedule. And things that are important, we tend to make time for. You have time to watch the evening news, don't you? I enjoy that. You have time to read the newspaper. Then that takes a little time. Well, then surely you have time to pray, if that's important. Because life becomes a matter of setting priorities in the light of eternity. And live by those values that do not grow old, 
with age. Yes, we all have more to learn, but we're growing. And those persons that are with us are going to have an opportunity to look at us, and we're going to have an opportunity to look at them. We don't have to be the know-it-all that always seems to understand everything. We're going to have to avoid becoming the authoritarian expert. There's only one authority. Where's that? It's God. And that's the way we began in understanding the Great Commission, recognizing that Jesus alone has all authority. So keep the focus on Him. And as you grow this way, you're going to be continually facing new situations. And you likely are going to have occasions when you'll have to confess to your family or to the group that you meet with how you've fallen short. I remember some years ago when my oldest daughter was going through a period of really rebellion in her teen years in high school. But because of the family and the discipline, others outside of this circle really did not know that she wasn't following the Lord, but it was breaking mom and dad's heart. I had mentioned it, though, to this group of boys that would meet with me at 6 o'clock in the morning. But I knew if I was going to be honest with them, I'm going to have to tell them where I was hurting, where I felt a failure. And so I resolved the night before that in the morning when we met, I would tell them where I'm at. And I remember that morning so well, they began to shed tears along with mine. We wept. We could have almost taken a towel and wiped the tears from the floor. But you know, I grew closer to those boys after that, I think, than I was ever before. Almost every day, one of them would come by and say, I'm praying for your daughter, Dr. Coleman. Or another one would say, how are things coming along now? I wish I could say that it was quickly resolved. We struggled through that for several years, up and down, up and down. Last summer, my daughter and her husband retired from a little Presbyterian church in West Texas. But I still remember those years when she was learning to put her priorities in order. And when I was learning that I had myself lessons to learn in the mercy and the grace of God. Don't hesitate to share yourself with people. It's part of this process of supervision. And when people see how vulnerable you are and how you are being tempted. They may draw closer to you when they realize you have clay feet just like they do. You can lead even from your failure if you're open about your failure and show that you're trusting God to lead you through.
I hope you have some fellowship like that with someone, hopefully a group, where you can really bear your heart. This work is too heavy and the burden too great to carry all alone. A principle of supervision. But you're always looking to the day of the harvest. Multiplication. You expect reproduction. And Jesus was continually making this a, a concern in his work with the disciples. He knew it from the beginning, and he was alluding to it even when he told them uh, to, to pray to the Lord of the harvest for the answer. So you couldn't think of prayer without being some way reminded that God had in mind a harvest someday of eternal life. He brought that out so beautifully in the fourth chapter of John, it's recorded, when they came to the village of Sychar on his way to Galilee. The disciples were hungry, so they went into town to get something to eat. Jesus, he had something else in mind. He just stayed at the well outside the gate and rested. And while the disciples were away, this woman came with a large water jar. And it was strange that she would come at this hour. It was the noon hour. Most people would come, the ladies would come early in the morning when it was cool. It was a time for fellowship. But this woman who came today would not have felt comfortable with the other ladies in the community. She had been ostracized. She was only known as a sinner. They didn't have anything to do with her. Jesus loved her and asked her for a drink of water, ingratiating himself to her. He was the one now that needed help. And that initiated a conversation that led this woman finally to the discovery that Jesus was the Messiah. And she was so overjoyed, she couldn't keep the good news to herself. Isn't it beautiful how young believers just just explode with a desire to tell the story. She rushed back into town, and the disciples must have passed her as they were returning, now having had a good lunch. I expect they saw this woman's face shining like she had swallowed a light bulb. But they also realized she'd been talking to Jesus, and her water pot was still sitting there beside the well. As far as I know, Jesus never did get his drink of water. <laughs> and they were surprised and said, Lord, you, you've been over here talking to this woman. Beside that, you missed your lunch. Oh, notice how Jesus seizes the moment. Don't you know, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. What a beautiful way to teach them that the food that really satisfies is the food that only God can give. And then he told these disciples they should open their eyes and see the harvest. Look out on the fields. Don't you see it? And they looked out at these fields 
and we're told they had just been planted. They were barren fields. What was Jesus teaching them? He wanted them to see that as that seed was planted inevitably, it would bring forth fruit. There would be a harvest. And he went on to tell them that many people would be involved in the harvest. Some that sow, some that reap, but all together would rejoice in the fruits of eternal life. Oh, he's a master teacher. They couldn't miss that lesson. And he wanted them to see by faith what God can do, projecting that vision, enlarging their expectation. Do you ever look out upon Fairfield and see what God can do in this place? Can you envision how people on the street that are walking by could actually be filled with joy and praise of God? Can you see God bringing a refreshing rain from heaven, nourishing the seed of the gospel that has been planted across the years, reaping a harvest. Project your vision. Open your eyes. Use your faith, Jesus is teaching these disciples. And that's the way they were learning. Because the seed that is planted will germinate. You don't see it while it's germinating beneath the soil, but you have faith to believe the time will come when there will be a sprout. One day walking along, they saw a vine growing out of the bushes, and Jesus identified himself with the vine, but he said, you are like the branches growing off the vine. And he added, from the branch there'll be fruit. Isn't that beautiful? The disciples are going to be the fruit bearers. Of course, the life comes from the vine through the branch. But the disciples are going to have the joy of seeing the abundant harvest. It's the way Jesus is always conveying this idea of reaching the time when the world will hear the gospel and his purpose fulfilled in discipling the nations. Have you noticed how often he alluded to himself as the Son of Man? Over 80 times that expression is recorded on the lips of Jesus. It goes back to the seventh chapter of the prophecy of Daniel, where he says one is coming in the clouds of heaven, who will receive a kingdom. And that kingdom will never perish. It is eternal. And that kingdom will encompass every tongue, every tribe, every people, every nation. It's a messianic promise. It looks to the day of our Lord's return when sometimes we refer to it as His second coming. Of course, in his first coming, he knew he was sent to offer the sacrifice for a world to be saved. And that's where his work was finished. And it will not be repeated again. It was finished once and for all. 
But on his way to Calvary, he often thought of the day he would come again in the clouds of glory and when all the nations would be gathered to praise him. He is the Son of Man. Oh, yes, he said the Son of Man now doesn't even have a place to lay his head, doesn't own any property. But that made him no less conscious of who he was. He said, yes, the Son of Man will be rejected by the chief priests and the scribes, and he will be killed. But on the third day, he said, the Son of Man will rise again. And the Son of Man will ascend back into the heavens. And the Son of Man will take his place at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the Son of Man will return in the clouds of glory. He lived in that consciousness of his return when the kingdom comes to consummation. Yes, we enter that kingdom now when we're born of the Spirit. But the kingdom is not completed yet. Not, he said, until this gospel of the kingdom has been preached in all the world. Then, he said, the end will come. Doesn't that thrill you? The kingdom is coming. We pray that the kingdom will come looking to that day when finally the Great Commission is fulfilled. And He's projecting that vision continually to His disciples to live in expectancy of that coming day. That's why with my boys, before we leave, as we get to the end of a semester, We go back again to some of the songs of heaven. I preached on one of them this morning. There's 14 of them. I just preached on one. But they're a look into what's going to happen as that great host in heaven are showing us what's going on now in the presence of God. And we will go through those songs. I call them songs of heaven. We will memorize them, only about 27 verses all together. Then we can repeat them and say them together. So, actually, we're learning the music, the, the, the text. Now, when we get to heaven, we'll already know the song. We just need the music. But it's a great encouragement to my soul to know the language of heaven, which is the language of praise and adoration and rejoicing in who God is as revealed in the Lamb who sits upon the throne. Oh, live with that vision. A vision that will grow sweeter through the years. A vision that will continually expand as you see what God is doing out across the world. A vision that will grow in the hearts of people as I'm sure these young people experienced when they went on this mission to Mexico. And others have gone to Rwanda and Ecuador. And I hope before you finish, every one of you will have an opportunity to go overseas in some place where you can see how God is bringing forth a harvest. This is harvest time. The kingdom is coming. And we live with that expectancy anticipating the ingathering of the nations at 
the throne of God. You know, I get blessed just thinking about it, don't you? <laughs> and I suspect going back on the plane tonight as I sit up on that plane on that red eye, this will come to mind. You can be weary in your body, but you can still dream with the angels around the throne. That's a principle. The principle of reproduction. We come into this world used as a baby, but as you grow up and mature, normally you will meet someone, you'll get married, and you'll start another family. And that's the way the world has been populated. But it's also the way that God is teaching us how the world will be populated with the children of God. It's just like raising kids. That's what it means to make disciples. Anybody on earth can understand it. And you can be sure God someday will finish what he started out to do. But it'll be through this principle of multiplication. As one believer tells another, and that disciple passes the word on to another, and that family in turn reaches out to others, so that someday, by the principle of multiplication, everyone will have opportunity to hear the gospel. That's the plan that was ordained by God when he created us in his very image so we can understand the Great Commission. It's like raising kids. But there's one more principle I have to mention before we move to some questions. I call it impartation. I saved it for the last, though in the book I put it in the middle. I didn't want to have to wait till the end we began to think about the Holy Spirit. But I saved it at last today because I wanted to emphasize Everything I've said thus far would be meaningless. It would be sounding brass and tinkling cymbal, except for the Spirit of God who accomplishes what he commands his church to do. And that's why the Great Commission concludes with the greatest promise in the Bible. Do you remember what it is? Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end. Can you think of anything greater? When you go out here on his errand of, of, of mercy, of ministry, you're not alone. He goes with you. He's right there beside you. Sometimes you may want to just pause along the, the, the sidewalk and acknowledge, thank you, Jesus, for being with me today. But whether you see him there or not, he's with you in your heart the deeper reality of your spirit. He says he'll not leave you. In good times and bad times, he'll be with us always. And the tragedy is that we may try to do it on our own strength. It's the spirit we are introduced to in the very first chapter of Genesis, verse 2, when the spirit moves upon the face of the deep. He is the power of God creating the cosmos. And it's the Spirit 
who breathes into the nostrils of this creature made from the dust the breath of life. And so that creature begins to live and move and have its being in God. That's why we can know Him and love Him and enjoy Him forever. That was the reason He created us. That's the reason we exist. There's no other reason for earthly existence except to give glory to our Creator and our God. Of course, Adam and Eve blew it. They didn't follow the opportunity they had to raise their children in the way of the Lord. Just like many today miss that same opportunity. But remember too that God himself lost his first children. Adam and Eve broke the heart of God when they went their own way. Don't you imagine that broke the heart of Jesus? He knows how you feel if you've ever gone through that. But his love would not let them go. He continued to follow them by His Spirit. And through the Old Testament again and again, the Spirit is at work preserving a people that have been called the children of God, the Israel of God. And again and again, it's the Spirit that takes what they're going through and turns it into a miracle of blessing. And by that same Spirit, He tells them the day is coming when a virgin shall conceive by the Spirit and bring forth into this world God's own Son. There on that black Julian night while the stars sang together, Jesus came into the world. The Spirit had planted the seam in the, in, in the womb of the virgin and she conceived by that Spirit and brought forth into human history God's one and only Son. And by that Spirit, Jesus was led during His incarnate ministry, like the time He went to His home synagogue at Nazareth, and He opened the Old Testament scroll that morning and began to read from the prophet Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, he has anointed me. You remember? And when he finished reading that passage of Scripture, he closed the scroll and he announced to that startled congregation, this day, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's identifying his work now in the flesh with what God has been doing from the beginning of time accomplishing His purpose. And so we're told by that Spirit He did mighty works which were designed to call people to believe on Christ. Even if you don't believe what He says, believe the works, they testify of Me. And as He comes to the closing days with His disciples, there's where we see the deepest and most extensive teaching on the Spirit in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. 
soon he will leave them. He knows that they're going to face a hostile world just as he has faced it. And just as the world hated Jesus, he said they will hate you. But he said, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to ask the Father, and he will send another counselor, advocate, comforter, alas parakletos, another who will take my place. And he will guide you into truth. He won't talk about himself, but he will glorify me. He'll answer your prayers. He will show you things to come. And he is the one that will be with you every day. That's the promise of the Great Commission. And so those disciples were told to go to the upper room where they had taken that last supper, to go to that place where they had heard this great teaching on the Spirit after His resurrection, and tarry there until the Spirit comes in power upon you. And you will receive power, He said, when the Spirit comes, and you will be My witnesses beginning in Jerusalem, where you live, and you'll go to Judea, and Samaria, and finally as reproduction occurs to the ends of the earth. And so they did as Jesus told them. They went back to that place where they had visited before, where had taken Holy Communion. It was the day of, of the Pentecost season. It was actually the tenth day of this feast last day. Nothing had happened. They were assembled in that upper room. I expect sometime someone had to be excused, maybe go out to the bathroom. But they were there. They knew that God would fulfill His promise. And after about ten days, while they had been waiting in expectancy and in faith, Suddenly there was a sound of rushing wind. The windows were open, of course. And that wind swept through that assembly and then out into the world, symbolizing how God's Spirit is going to sweep out across the earth. And then there was a fire that seemed to come through the ceiling, literally a spiritual fire, that separated and sat upon the head of each person present. It's interesting, the word sat when it speaks of the Spirit sitting on the head of the disciples, is the same word which says Jesus has returned to heaven and sat at the right hand of the throne. The king always sits. Commoners stand in the presence of the king. Which is to say that the Spirit of God now has come upon His church and He has taken control. He is the one now that will continue the work that Christ has finished on the cross. And He will make known to a rebellious world what Jesus Christ has revealed. And He will convict of sin and of righteousness, of judgment, of sin because they don't believe, of righteousness because 
The true righteousness of Christ makes our righteousness look as nothing, like filthy rags. He will convince them too that our measure of truth is in error. The one the world rejected is the one that God raised from the dead. And the Spirit will convince the world of the resurrection, convincing a world that God has all power in heaven and on earth. That's the authority of the Great Commission. And we live in that age today because Jesus promised the Spirit would be with us all the way, even to the end of the age. There's a group here this, this afternoon about the size of that 120 that were assembled in the upper room. I didn't count the number, but I would say it would be very close. They weren't standing. We're told they were sitting. They weren't wringing their hands. No one was upset. They were perfectly assured that Jesus would do what he said. They were simply waiting. And I trust that that will be the feeling that we have here this afternoon. That the Spirit who is here will come with a new feeling of the presence of Jesus. And will anoint us to go out and do what he has commissioned us to do. There's no other way to do the job. Only the Spirit of Christ can make disciples of Christ. We're just an instrument, and we're utterly helpless unless the Spirit of God working in us enables us to do the work of Christ. Jesus had told those disciples in the upper room that they would do greater things than these. He said, we were singing about it. Because I go to the Father and am no more with you. Everyone who believes, he said, will do my work, but even greater works. And I've wondered about that. How could the church do anything greater than Jesus? Certainly not in miracles or in teaching or preaching. But in one respect, I can see how the church is actually doing something greater. And that is reaping the harvest. As we see missions spreading out across the earth today in a measure that hasn't been experienced in hundreds and hundreds of years. In gathering the harvest, we're living in an age when we're seeing greater things than even those first disciples saw that walked with Christ. Doesn't it thrill you? The Great Commission is being fulfilled. And don't you want to have a part in this? Don't you want to invest your life here for the fruit that is eternal? Yes, we begin by becoming a servant, a principle of incarnation, of a different nature, but there's a sense in which the Spirit recreates us into the image for which we were intended when He made us. And it's the Spirit who makes the selection. We simply respond to those the Spirit is drawing into our life. 
We respond to his leading. It's the spirit who creates the fellowship, the association, whether it's with you and another person or whether it's with the whole congregation. The church is his creation. And it's the spirit that breathes love into your soul so that you want to obey and you yearn to know more that you can respond to what he asks you to do. So obedience becomes your joy and rejoicing as your love finds expression now in making disciples. And it's the Spirit who leads you into truth. He's the one that knows the way, so you just follow as He leads. And as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And it's the Spirit who involves us in ministry according to His will, according to His purpose, according to the gifts that He bestows. It's all His work. And it's the Spirit that supervises, that keeps us in touch, stays with us. He reproves us when we're out of line. He encourages us when we, we need help. He helps us even as we pray with groanings that cannot be uttered. And it's the Spirit that brings forth the harvest. We're nothing more than a witness to a miracle. We stand amazed at what God is doing by His own power and authority. Changing people's lives. Recreating the course of history. Bringing in a kingdom that is eternal from every tongue and tribe and nation. Oh, think of it. And we do that because He has promised to go with us. He brings forth a harvest. That's the Spirit's work. It's a lifestyle that fills every day with expectancy and with joy. Don't you want to live that way every day? It's so simple. But it's not easy. But it's the way of the cross that leads home. And someday, there'll be a reunion in the sky. What a day that will be. I looked at my clock and I said we would have a little time for questions. At least I've got forth the main idea. But now it's your turn. I know I've just watered the ground where I should fill a pool and there's much more that needs to be said. But I'd like to hear what's on your mind. Something that may be confusing. Uh, maybe I can clear up. I think of the fellow on the college campus going around wearing a big lapel button that had printed on it the letters B-A-I-K. Someone asked him what that meant. He said, that means, boy, am I confused. <laughs> and he's reminded, don't you know, you don't spell confused with a K. He said, man, you don't know how confused I am. <laughs> well, that may be where you are. But I've found confusion even in the house of God. So, if you've got a question, feel free to ask it. And your brother Dan over here has got a 
microphone that may be helpful to you. Yeah, you can either ask out loud, really loud, or I'll come to you. So. Okay, they're beginning to ask questions. This will There's encourage. There's a lot of new versions of the Bible out there. Do you have a favorite, and has that changed over the years? What Bible? I yeah, versions of the Bible. Verses in the Bible. There's or? a lot of new ones out there. Well, yes, I keep finding new ones all the time. Do you change, or how does that affect your teaching? For instance, I was researching for memorization for my kids. Well, in my standard class, I don't teach the introductory class anymore. I'm basically just teaching doctoral level courses. But in the, the beginning, they had to memorize 70 verses. I expect, Dan, did you have 70, or did I lessen it a little? As I've gotten older, I've, I've gotten a little more tolerant. I think I remember so those brown cards college, well. Look for the old professors. They probably will be more merciful. These young upstarts that have just graduated, they want to show how smart they are. So they try to appear, you know, they know everything. When you get to be my age, you know that you're ignoramus. <laughs> you don't know it all. But I, I do have some verses that are basic. Basic just salvation that relate to follow-up, relate to uh, discipling. But then, as I mentioned, uh, the songs of heaven, that's a good place to begin, or the psalms. And my wife and I, we have devotions together now. The kids are all gone. So after breakfast, uh, we sit down, just mom and dad. The kids have their own families, and we have a devotion. We're alluding, using a little devotional guide from Moody Press, which is a Real simple Bible study. And then it has a Bible verse to go over every day. We go over it, but we don't usually memorize it. It's harder for me to memorize now. And when I do memorize, I tend to still go back to the early verses in the old King James. That's how it started out. And now I get confused because these new students, they want to use the RSV or now the New English Version or some other version. And, you know, when you have a dozen, they're giving it in different versions. We all get confused before it's over. But I say, all right, you learn your way, and we'll just rejoice together. But another question. I better pick up my Bible because I didn't forget yeah, to bring it How up important a is a sinner's prayer when you're witnessing somebody? Or spiritual law, sinner's prayer, that kind. I wasn't sure I understood the question. The track were basically a sinner's prayer for spiritual law mm -hmm. that was started in the 60s. Yeah. How important is that to use or should that be used? Well, you know, in one of these little books up here, I have a sinner's prayer. Sometimes that helps a person get started, but I've never specifically memorized a sinner's prayer. I like to just make it up right there beside a sinner as he's trying to pray, and it just comes to mind. And it's usually clothed in the situation in which I find him in and, and where he can identify with the prayer. So I just pray that. But I always include our praise to God that he loved us. And then that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. And he offers forgiveness and a new life to those who will turn their life over to him. I phrase it in a way that makes sense to him. And... And then I say, now, does that make sense to you? Can you pray it? And he may say, well, I don't know that I can. I say, would you like for me to say the words first and you pray after me? 
sometimes they don't know how to pray. And though I do, and then I turned to him again, I said, now, did you mean those words that I prayed? And if he can understand it and tell it back to me, I rejoice. And we have a wonderful time celebrating. I, I remember an experience years ago. I was preaching over in the mountains of Virginia and Buckhannon County. That's about the wildest country in the mountains that, that I've been in, in Appalachia. And it was a little church on Deskins Creek, Deskins Hollow. We were meeting in the schoolhouse at the end of the hollow. Now, in Kentucky, of course, everybody knows what a hollow is. That's the draw between two mountains or two hills. It uses a little creek that runs at the bottom, and that's often the road. So a couple of preachers were with me, and we'd been walking up. We went as far as the car could go. Then we had to get out and walk because it was a kind of a rocky creek. And they'd had a little rain that afternoon. And there was about two inches of cold mountain water that was running down that creek. I was on one side, and these other two preachers on the other side. I came up off the old coal miner first. He was coming back from work. His face was just dark with soot. And he was trying to loosen a stone that was backing up the water in the creek so he could walk across. I happened to get to him first. I introduced myself. told him I was the preacher that night down at Deskin School and invited him to the meeting. He didn't show any response. I said, well, Mr. Ask him his name. He said his name was Meadows. I said, Mr. Meadows, are you a Christian? Now, remember, this is the mountains. Over in eastern Kentucky, you can afford to be straight from the shoulder. You don't have liberals there. You have saints and sinners. Liberals like to keep their feet on concrete. And the sooner you can get to it, as straight as you can say it, it makes sense to these mountaineers. So I could say, are you a Christian? I usually don't begin that way. But I remember, I've got a dinner appointment that night, and I've got to preach that night, and I was running out of time. And he looked at me and he says, no, I'm not a Christian. I said, well, wouldn't you want to be? I always phrase it so he can answer responsibly. He said, yes. I said, well, do you believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for your sins? He said, yes, I believe that. I think most people over in the mountains of Kentucky believe that. They listen to these mountain preachers. You can get them on the, pre- on the radio almost any time. They, they believe it. They don't question the Bible. They just haven't lived up to it. And I said, well, do you believe he's raised, God raised him from the dead? He said, yes, I believe that. And I said, well, I believe if you would really confess your sins, come clean with God, repent, he would save you. Do you believe that? He said, yes, I believe that. He's an honest man. I said, well... Let's just pray and let Jesus do his work. I don't know the exact words. I put my arm around his shoulder, and I said, Now, Mr. Meadows, you just pray out. He said, I don't know how to pray. I said, Well, just tell him what, what you feel in your heart. He said, Preacher, can you help me? I've never prayed in my life. I said, Well, I'll just pray a prayer for you. And you listen, and then you see if you can pray a prayer like it after me. So I went through a prayer. You might call a sinner's prayer. And then I said, can you pray that prayer and really mean it? He said, yes, I, I can. I believe I can. I said, now repeat after me. So I started over at Dear Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. I know I, I need to be saved. I went through it. And then I got to the end and I said, amen. And I turned to him. I said, Mr. Meadows, did you really mean what we prayed? He said, yes. 
Well, you know, I've been re restrained until then. But I have to confess, at that point, I was so overjoyed I couldn't be quiet. And I stood up in the middle of that creek and began to praise God with dear old brother Meadows. And those two preachers on the other side were so flabbergasted, they told me later they couldn't believe what they saw. I believe God saved him. But I didn't want to turn him loose. I, I, he, I responded to his invitation to go home with him. So I walked through that creek up the other side, along the bank, and there was, around the turn, there was a, uh, an old fence, paling, uh, what do they call these logs? They, they put, though that was the kind of fence they had. And I noticed his, his son was there at the gate, kind of dragging a foot behind him, but we walked to the cabin. It was just a two-room cabin up there on the mountainside. And I went in first, and it was just filthy. You could have, you could have scraped the, the dirt from the floor with a shovel. And, but I wanted to encourage him to give affirmation to his faith. And as I walked in first, I could see his wife, who was a very large woman, in a state of shock. And so I said, Mrs. Meadows, uh, the Lord has done something wonderful for your husband. I believe he would like to tell you about it. And I stepped aside, making him now give a testimony, you see, helping him. And he did acknowledge that he'd been saved. And now his wife began to rejoice. And I learned that she was a Christian. She had been praying for him for years. But she was not able to get out to church. It was about two miles down to the end of the holler. And her ankles were swollen. She, she couldn't walk very well. But I believe her prayers were answered. And then that boy, I learned, had polio when he was just a young child. And that's why he was dragging that leg as we walked to the cabin. And she said sometimes he'd be on the mountain picking blackberries. She could hear that boy back at the house praying for his daddy. Before I left that day, I turned to that boy and I said, would you put me on your prayer list and pray for me? I believe his prayers got through. And if he's still living, I believe he prays for me. I came back about two years later near that area and I asked if I could go over there from the pastor where I was visiting in a church. And we went and found that place. He was up on the hillside grubbing uh, potatoes. And I remember I walked up beside him. His eyes were so bad he couldn't really recognize me. But when I spoke, he recognized the voice. He threw down that big old hole and he said, Preacher, let's go back to the house. And we knelt down together and he gave praise to God with his son and his wife. I'm going to see Brother Meadows someday. And if you see an old professor and an old coal miner running down the streets of gold shouting the praises of God, you'll know who it is. Well, I get off on tangents, you can see. <laughs> but I enjoy this so much. I just love to talk about Jesus. I love to see people experience the joy of the Lord. That's our strength. And when you get to be my age, people are more forgiving. <laughs> These dear students of mine, they learn. Very soon they've got to be patient with me.
And I love those students. I'll be with them again in a few days. Now, Brother Dan. Yeah, we've got to wrap up. Um, can I, in brief, in like 30 seconds to a minute, no more, how important is it today to get to know a person before, saying using a track method or something like that? The more you can know a person, the more you can intelligently pray for him. And you build that relationship. You make a friend. And that's very important if you're going to present the gospel until he trusts you, knowing that you really care for him. It's not likely he's going to give any attention to what you say. But when he believes you're authentic, you're not manipulating him, you're not trying to in any way embarrass him, but you're trying to express the love of God to him, then give him the gospel. Give him the gospel. Okay, we're going to do one more thing. I'd like everybody, you know, it's been our tradition for the last few years to have the missionary go to the middle and us lay hands and pray over them. And because this is the reverse, we wanted the reverse to happen. So we'd like everybody to gather towards the middle, and we're going to have mm-hmm. Dr. Coleman pray over us that God would affect what he's been talking to us about, that we don't just hear it and walk away, but we live it. So let's, let's all come to the middle and have him let's pray gather for us. around. If I can get someone to remember him in prayer, I'll be infinitely richer for having passed this way. And that's why I'm here. People have prayed for me through the years. And it's a miracle of grace that I'm standing here before you this afternoon. So remember me when you're before the Father. And let's look forward to the day when there'll be a reunion again at the throne. And Father, I thank you for these new friends, for this people here in this church that are being led by faithful shepherds and by men and women who are in the ministry that you have gifted them for in this church. In so many ways, it's evident as I've been here today. I thank you for each one who is present and who wants to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. Oh, be pleased, Father, to lead them on into something new today and something that will thrill their souls as their faith is stretched to believe for greater things than these. We stagger at your promises, knowing that we've only scratched the surface, but we believe that nothing is too hard for you. And as you have called us, you will also accomplish that which you have committed to us. So we praise you, Father. Oh, we thank you that you've not rewarded us according to our iniquity, but only according to your grace. We praise you that what you have begun, you will finish. Oh, how great you are to be praised. Give us a heart truly to lift up you in our praise and to join that host now in your presence who never cease to worship you and adore you and honor the name of Jesus. Oh, we love you, Father, and we want to go from this place with that beautiful anointing of the sweet spirit of Christ so that we can speak clearly the words of Jesus and by whatever deed we can give in your name that it will communicate how great you are to be saved.
for every person who will call upon the name of the Lord. Yes, we praise you, Father. Give us a heart from sin set free, a heart that always feels your blood so freely shed for me to the praise and the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.